Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden Artist Colors became an employee-owned company in 2002, and in 2010, the employees became the majority owners. And despite worldwide distribution, Golden product is still created on the grounds of the original barn in New Berlin using the highest standards for consistency and quality. You can find their products in pretty much every art store, and you can find more about them at goldenpaints.com. Heather Day is an artist who lives and works in San Francisco, California. Heather received a BFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art on the Presidential Scholarship in Baltimore. Her work has been shown at the Urban Institute of Contemporary Art, the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, and her work can be found in the collections of Facebook, J.Crew, The Ritz-Carlton, Airbnb, Snapchat, Dropbox, Warner Brothers, YouTube, and the Chicago Philharmonic Orchestra. Heather's work has been covered in Juxtapose, 7x7, Dwell, The Atlantic, CNET, Create, The Washington Post, and much more. I met up at Heather at the site of her show at Joshua Liner Gallery for a talk about her many travels growing up, synesthesia, music, process, and more. Here's our conversation. Long night. (laughs) Yeah. My voice is shot. (laughs) Well, I've never started a podcast by talking about an opening, but since yours was like three hours ago, (laughs) or a few hours ago. It feels like it was just a few hours ago. It feels like you just left. (laughs) Yeah. Um, How was it? It was a great. I mean, it's uh, this was my first New York show, and I was a little nervous, but yeah. um, it was very cool that a lot of people came out despite the cold, rainy weather. So. Now you, yeah, it's been not so nice. It's you know, well, I live in California, right? So I'm pretty spoiled. <laughs> yeah, you get the well. San Francisco is like the 65 degree, nice, no humidity. Breezy. Yeah. It's just neutral. I mean, we're we're kind of in our rainy part of the year, but it's just pretty neutral, and I don't mind the rain because it's conducive to painting. Yeah. So. But it's not aggressive weather. No. It's kind of like chill. <laughs> pretty good, at least where I'm where I'm based. Yeah. Well, did you grow up in San Francisco or California? No, um, I'm actually originally from Hawaii, and what? Um, from That's, Oahu. Yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite place. Really? It's, well, maybe next to Tokyo. I, I haven't love been to Tokyo. Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, Hawaii is great. Uh, I was my mom was a marine for several years, and so I was born there. And um, my dad is from Hawaii. And I lived there for a little bit, and then continued moving. Wait, so your dad is like a local? He's a local. He's white, but he's. Um, How did he end up in Hawaii? <laughs> his his family moved there when he was a kid, and he just stayed there. It's I mean, it's pretty pretty dreamy out there. It is. I I always tell people. I could just go there and do what it doesn't, wouldn't matter what my job is. I could do anything and just live there. <laughs> and I feel like I'd be happy. I honestly, I could not live there again. It's um, too Hawaii. It's, it's <laughs> too much of an Island. <laughs> That's true. It you is. Know, I, I like the fact that I can drive and keep driving across the U S and yeah. yeah, you can kind of circle the Island yeah. in a couple hours. You're kind of limited there. But That's true. But yeah. I mean, do you feel, I also like prefer, um, as much as we're talking about neutral weather, more dreary weather. Oh, yeah? Well, you made it to the right <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so this is your first show in New York, but have you come to New York a bunch? Or? I feel like I've pretty much been in New York like once a month for the past six months, um, working on various things um, and just trying to be more involved in the art scene here. And yeah. it's pretty exciting to um, be getting to know more people, making friends here, and doing more studio visits, too. Right. Yeah. Out in Brooklyn. Yes, yeah. that's where I've spent most of my week, actually. That's cool. So, well, I guess you're just going to have to put up with that San Francisco weather, <laughs> even though you like the dreary. Well, it yeah. gets cloudy. It gets It gets of, cloudy. I'm, yeah. on, I'm in the dog patch, which is on the kind of more sunny side. It's, it, I face the Bay Bridge rather than the Golden Gate okay. Bridge to give you some perspective. So you get a little more weather. It's a little more moody. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. So when, you, um, when you're growing up in Hawaii, I mean, what's that like? Well, it's such a, it's such a, well, it's a beautiful place. The weather's amazing. Everyone's, well, not everyone, but it's pretty chill. People are relaxed. 
that's the thing is I I feel like I have to kind of I moved so much as a kid that um, I moved away when I was two and I moved to Japan and uh, yeah I was living in Okinawa where my mom uh, my parents were stationed and uh, my parents divorced when I was very little and so after that um, my mom never moved back to Hawaii so I continued I spent all of my summers growing up um, it's funny I was talking to someone else that's divorced and we never went to camp as kids and that's uh, a very uh, common thing for uh, kids of divorced families so instead you go see your other parent over the summer right right and that's kind of your camp yeah but I you know I got to go to Hawaii every summer with my sister so that's pretty good no complaints over here (laughs) um and my dad uh was a DJ growing up so I spent my summers kind of going with him he was like a party DJ wow yeah oh like like those parties yeah like a corporate pre-ipod party DJ so but growing up there, I mean, do you feel, well, how long did you spend there? So I was, not long. I was just there pretty, pretty much. It's safe to say I was only there for the summers of my childhood, um, right. from age, uh, like four to, um, you know, when I didn't want to spend every summer there yeah. eventually. But, uh, I then moved from Japan to the East coast and spent most of my childhood around the DC area. Okay. And then I actually moved to Chicago for high school. Man, that's a lot of moving. And extreme yeah. moving. I kind of, me and Obama have a similar, like, uh, oh, travel right. schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like also military family people, you know, yeah. there's a lot of moving going on. It's just really common. I was I'm very do you have siblings? used to it. Yeah, I have one older sister. So, so do you feel, I mean, I, I would imagine that you feel like you're moving around and growing up in vastly different places informed you in some way or another. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very appreciative of the fact that I got to see so many places and um, I got used to moving. I mean, I guess it's a little bit different in how you have um, childhood friend relationships and mine are a little bit more distant, but there are a few people I've kept in touch with. And, um, you know, when I went to college, it it just was like another city and it wasn't a big deal for me. And um, same with when I moved out to San Francisco and kind of was able to adjust and acclimate a lot faster than I think other people might be able to. Yeah, nimble. I imagine, too, that if you ever change studios, that would be a little easier because some people have a real hard time moving a studio. I, I love that feeling It of maybe it's problematic, I don't know, that feeling when you first move into a new space and yeah. there's so many possibilities and it's so clean it's and fresh. pristine. Yeah. New star- it's like carte blanche, like a new start. Yeah, or like, you know, or some, yeah, exactly, or just when you rearrange furniture and yeah. even though it might not be the right fit where the sofa should go, it just feels so good and fresh. And yeah, yeah, I it's like a new start. But the actual process of moving is a pain in the ass. Yeah, although I'm getting really good at it. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's not bad for you. Maybe you're yeah. used to it. Well, when you move so much, um, well, the smart movers know to have less stuff. It's just like, right. you know, being a traveler, you want to pack less, and then you don't have to carry it with you. So, yeah. So, wait, how long were you in Japan? Um, I was there for, like, preschool. Do You, you don't remember? I remember anything? little bits. Um, but my mom talks about all the time how I used to um, understand Japanese and interact because I went to a Japanese school off of the military base because yeah. my parents really wanted me to um, be part of that culture. Oh, so that's cool. I think it's time for me to go back to Japan and see what comes back to me also. I think so. And just, I would imagine, I mean, it's such a different sensibility, you know. Yeah, It might absolutely. be a nice reconnection. So when did, along all that moving, when did creativity peak out? Were you always drawing or interested in art or being creative? Yeah, I was very strange. I still am very weird. Um, But that kind of curiosity and I I was just always drawing. And so I I guess when I was really little, I was building things um, with like cereal boxes and scotch tape. And I was almost more of a sculptor as a kid. And Mm -hmm. then that evolved into drawing and uh Later, um, when I was about 10, I was um, actually, I found out that I was dyslexic, which um, made, things started to make more sense, actually, to to figure out um, how I learn and how I could um, find the tools to help me continue in school. Yeah. And um, it started to all make sense in the way I see the world and how I draw to come to terms with things. And um, art was the one place where 
I found it wasn't a matter of fact and it was something where I could come up with my own rules, my own questions and answers to. Freedom from yeah. that order, you know. Absolutely. There's no correct direction. It's what you make of it, really. Exactly. So um, that was kind of like an open door in a way. Did you have teachers too sure. who were like encouraging or was it more of your own thing? I had really encouraging teachers. As much as I switched schools, I somehow still found the people. Um, my grandma always says you have to find your people, and I think I got really good at doing that um, every time we moved and found people that could be encouraging and um, understand my situation. Yeah. I was a really hard worker, but I wasn't very good at school in general. Um, but I was very fortunate to always find the um, art classes and teachers that were encouraging of other strengths I might have. Yeah. Well, and your dad is somewhat creative. I mean, he's dealing with music, which is a creative endeavor. I mean, did you grow and you have an older sister. So what was the music thing growing up? Was it, was it big? My dad also had rotating different bands throughout my life and nice. is also a guitarist and yeah. singer. So What did he like? Well, maybe a lot of stuff since he was a DJ, but what was his music? What was playing um, in the house when you were growing up? With him, everything, um, like, well, a lot of Hawaiian music, actually. Yeah. Um, and Like slack key stuff? He was, a uh, lot of Hawaiian. It was funny because he was also, also so into hip-hop, and he had such a diverse range. I mean, it made him such a good DJ, I guess. He was, as a band, he was doing more of, like, covers of everything from, you know, Tom Petty, um, and... And then some of the CDs he, I heard him playing like at parties uh, were like, you know, Britney Spears. Right, <laughs> so, right. so it was a quite, quite a diverse range. Um, were you into music growing up? Yeah, I was into it. But it's funny enough, I don't really have a sense of rhythm. Uh, I do have an interesting relationship with um, sound in that um, I have synesthesia. So I associate color um with sound and sometimes textures and heightened emotion and um, taste mm -hmm. and so I didn't I didn't really ever talk about it until I was in my early 20s because I thought everyone did it and so I always you just you thought know, that's the way it was yeah when I'm hear a certain sound um sometimes on the like my peripheral I it's almost like someone's holding up a colored lens and mm -hmm. um it's like a smudge of a color is actually there to me and I kind of Often when it's happening, I kind of look around the room to see if I'm just pulling that from another, a painting that's in the room or right. something else that's there. And so, um, yeah, there was just a moment when I was, well, I was wine tasting for the first time when I moved to California and that was very foreign to me. And everyone's going around talking about how, um, I don't know, the, the cliche things they say about right, right. wine. Tasting uh, notes. Yeah, and tasting the notes and, you know, I think one description was like, oh, it's like fresh cut grass. And <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, oh, yeah, it's very blue. Oh, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Like red wines, uh, steaks, like the those are always very blue. Uh, salmon is always a, very, a fuchsia color. And then it's different. If I'm um, really upset about something, I'll, I'll see different... Um, like neon colors it's very strange <laughs> it's funny because i've i've heard a lot of people talk about synesthesia but i don't know that i've read into the sort of diagnosis or the, mm -hmm. the you know physiological you know reason it exists do they know why that happens or can they kind of place any physiological connection between that you're catching me at a point where I'm still learning exactly what it means and also how to talk about it. Yeah. Um, this is the first time in my paintings where I'm exploring it in my statement around the work and really focusing on it. But um, from my understanding, it's like overlapping of nerves. It's it's almost like a malfunction in your brain. Mm -hmm. um, but I need to definitely study it more. Well, it's, I mean, it's kind of like colorblindness. People say they're colorblind, but is it really colorblind or is it just a different way of seeing color? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It's interesting. You, like, you know those mantis shrimp creatures? Yeah, yeah. They can like break aquarium glass and they see in a spectrum of color that's like a million times broader than really? what we see. Yeah, wow. like they're the, the physiological aspect of their um, taking in light and seeing color mm -hmm. is so broad that where we see red and blue makes purple, they probably have like 50 yeah. shades that they can that's see. Crazy. It's really interesting like how, yeah. you know, color is such a, random it's just the one thing that's really hard to put your finger on when it comes yeah. to 
making art. Traditionally, people say, well, what's, what's with your palette? And a lot of times people are like, well, it's kind of intuitive or, you know, I'm influenced by this or that, but it's, it's something that's hard to peg down, I think. And, and I would imagine in your case, it becomes even more uh, nuanced talking about it because you're associating it with this, you know, way of seeing that's not as common. Well, I think we're all striving for this sense of um, normalcy and I think there's, it, I've heard so many stories where people are like, my dad didn't know he was colorblind until like, you know, we were like, that's red. No, it's green. And they're having a conversation. And he's like age 40, you know? Yeah. And, and that's so funny to me. I think we've kind of forget to tune into the way we might actually see things and, and how that, that might feel. Right. So yeah. It took me, I used to get migraine headaches mm-hmm. and I would get the ones where you're, it's kind of like your, um, like an aura. Yeah. You lose yeah. some of your sight which is crazy yeah and you you see white out of a quarter and i didn't know what was happening but i just knew that when that went away i would get a monster headache you know and um but other people will say they get migraines but they i don't think they they get that so it's this weird i i actually get migraines but i don't get that aura or you know blindness yeah and i'm just very sensitive to light when it happens but um oh i wanted to say though um, aside from synesthesia, what I've been really thinking about is how how we actually were talking about light and color and how we take in light in general. Like, yeah. you know, I'm sitting in this room. If I close my eyes, just by having my eyes closed, I'm actually still seeing light that's getting through my eyelids. Right. And they're often like right now I'm seeing like light washes of red. And mm-hmm. I think I've been thinking about ways to trigger synesthesia and also ways that other people see color in strange situations like when your eyes are shut and there's still something there yeah. you know um it's almost like a static texture right um and i think that that is also the same concept where i'm saying you know there's color in my peripheral when i'm um experiencing heightened emotion it's so easy to overlook those things because um we're still seeing with our eyes closed and i think there's a lot there yeah definitely yeah. i remember being a kid and just poking my eye because you would see like blue and exactly. like different patterns and i would just sit there and poke my eye. and that honestly that is kind of what synesthesia is like yeah. kind of like staticky um i don't know if you're not, it's not like you're gonna faint but when you're seeing like stars or weird colors yeah, yeah. when you go in from out of like the sunlight going into a dark room or the shifts right. um in light and perspective often can be a similar synesthetic reaction it's disorienting a lot of times isn't it yeah, that's the hardest part about having, and I there's um, more challenging forms of synesthesia, uh, but with me, it's I find it just more distracting if I'm trying to focus on something someone's saying and uh, I'm seeing strange washes of color like and I'm, you know, and tornado. is anyone seeing this? <laughs> yeah. Well, why are you looking to the left of my head all the time? Yeah. yeah, I would imagine that would be distracting. I'll be in, like in a serious conversation with someone and be like, I'm so sorry, there's just so much color. And <laughs> I, I only say that to like my really close friends because I could probably start weirding people out. Right, but right. it happens. Yeah, that's... Well, okay, so that was happening as you were growing up you were coming to, you were kind of realizing that that's a phenomenon or or you didn't become aware of it until... I thought everyone did that. Right. Um, I think I was already starting... I was always very curious about color um color and orientation um especially being dyslexic and I think in a very scattered way and I remember sitting in the back seat of um my parents car on like a long road trip and I was always drawing um maps um like with a crayon on the pad of paper when the car turned my crayon would turn and I was really fascinated by finding ways to orient myself within the drawing um, rather than drawing a, a literal map. Right. Um, and I'm not sure if that, <laughs> it's like synesthesia, dyslexic, a lot of weird things happening there. But Conceptual abstraction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mom, dad, I'm just doing conceptual. Yeah, yeah. Eight-year-old sitting in the back right. seat. And <laughs> I'm working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's to my, my uh, mobile studio. It's uh, Crayola on paper. Right. <laughs> So that affected sound too, obviously, right? So is your relationship to music somewhat, you know, affected by that, by synesthesia? For sure. Um, you know, I, I, I'll listen to some songs and I, I think some reason I associate with a lot of music, classical music in particular is always very green to me. Mm-hmm. And um, when there's like a higher pitch, um, this is a little bit more of a literal example, but like a high pitch in a song um, immediately turns red to me. 
um, that I don't like that example as much because that seems obvious. Like, right. You know, it should aggressive. Be, like you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, color um, starts to become kind of this uh, way to make a statement or um, an, almost like an exclamation point in how it's used. Yeah. Uh, and I think that happens a lot in music um, with it, whether it's a chorus or it's a um, one single sound happening. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot of artists who over history have investigated sort of, you know, look at like Kandinsky when he did these compositions based on orchestras and, you know, classical music and assigned kind of like colors and movement to it. It's like an interesting combination. I mean, when you were a kid, did you watch Fantasia? Oh my gosh, I loved Fantasia. I was going to say, is that, was that too much or was it? I don't know. I I mean, I I don't know if every kid loved it though. Yeah. It was just such, I mean, I loved it. How incredible that they were able to um, incorporate like animation and um, that type of music to a young audience. Yeah. And they're captivated by it. <laughs> right. It was like a, kind of a mind-blowing thing the first time I saw it. Yeah. I Did wonder you, what the modern day version of that would be if it would work. <laughs> oh, I don't know. There's so many things now, too. Yeah. Like yeah. I, you can see anything at any point. I wonder if it still hits as hard. I. That concerns me a lot. I think we are all victims of mass consumption at this point. With right, overstimulus. It, yeah, like you know, I listen to, like I'll play music in the car, and it's just on a playlist while I'm driving, and I, I find myself listening to ten seconds and then going to the next song. Ten yeah. seconds next time, it's like, wow. Well, that wasn't what the artist intended. It's a full composition here, and you're just right. like, fl- it would be like if someone just kind of flipped through my paintings real fast. It's yeah, kind of absurd. Yeah. Like, oh, I get it. I get but the it, point. You know, like when I was growing up, you got excited about going to hear or going to buy a record to the whole thing. Listen to the whole thing in the order in which yeah. it was uh, composed. Which, and I think when you wrote, you know, you wrote music that did flow or you thought about that kind of like flow between, you know, song one and song 10. But um, yeah, I don't know how that works as far as like making art too. Mm-hmm. And because now it's so disparate, you know, there's shows, so you have a show here, but yeah. You know, what about art fairs? What about projects? And, you know, everything's so scattered. Does that affect the way, do you think it affects the way that you make work? Absolutely. I would say if I was going to um, be critical of my career, I would say things are moving. Though it's it's a great, you know, these are all great opportunities. Um, things are moving a little too fast. And um, you can kind of start to lose something in your work and the process um, when you're moving that fast. I think my paintings need to sit for long periods of time um, before I can even show it and decide it's actually done. Uh, This work that was in the show, um, it's kind of interesting because I only had just under a month to complete all the work. However, I was tucked away in upstate New York, you know, three hours north of the city here and in Hudson Valley and I was pretty much alone most of the time. And the so cold. with zero distractions, yeah, yeah and yeah. the cold, which I do think Huddled is also in. conducive yeah, yeah. to painting. And right. um, so I guess time was different there where um, it almost stood still for a little while. It was surrounded by snow and there was no, I didn't really want to go out. And um, suddenly like 10 hours of painting felt like it could double. Yeah. And then... Uh, does your process change? Well, let's talk a little bit about process too, because yeah. it's such the, the content of your work, I would imagine is so embedded in process. It sounds like judging by your backseat conceptual drawing tour, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that it's something that, that it's kind of intuitive that you are interested in, you know, movement and what happens kind of improvisation. Um, what's the, it's, you know, that obviously there's, when I look at your work, I think of, you know, it born out of sort of modernist abstraction and, you know, like Frankenthaler and Morris Lewis and people like that, I would imagine are people that you're excited by, but what was the sort of artistic influence that moved you into abstraction and, you know, did it come through school or were you, what were you working like early on and how did that develop? Uh, well, That's a well, long question. Sorry. Gonna, it's all right. I'm going to try to pick that apart here. <laughs> I... I was always, um, my drawings were always very quirky. They were, I was never really good at making it, um, you know, if I was doing a portrait of someone, it never looked just like them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really fascinated by, like, the textures in their face or um, the, the angle in which they're standing or kind of the contour of them or the negative space around them rather than, like, getting their eye just right. right. I'm not sure I could either. <laughs> Maybe that I immediately recognized my other strengths in drawing, but... Um, 
I, yeah, so knowing those things and um, being fascinated by, like, movement. And when I was in high school, I went to an arts high school in Chicago and Mm -hmm. um, downtown, and I... Um, there was a dance department and I would just go sit in the dance department for hours on end and, and draw the dancers and I soon realized I was really fascinated by movement and um, the negative space between their arms as they moved and what that looked like and I was really studying de Kooning's work at the time uh, mostly male painters I wasn't very familiar with female painters unfortunately until later um, in college but that I think had a Im- huge impact in how I started approaching abstraction and I made the depart- departure uh, in, a, in undergrad and really pushed it further. And I felt like I needed to earn it first and give my compi- myself um, permission to, to jump into that. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, and then you, you could cross the street and go see all those Degas and Surratt and like all those. I, I imagine that had some Pretty much had un- unlimited access to the Art Institute. And um, I loved Van Gogh and... Um, I was also reading the letters he wrote to his brother yeah. in high school, and um, that had a huge impact. And also, Chicago is such a great city for architecture, so I was it really is. drawn to that. And I actually thought I was going to be an architect, and I was sort of interning in high school at an architecture firm um, my my fourth year in school. And I, I w- graduated and went to uh, Maryland Institute College of Art. for. Right. I thought I was going to study environmental design, um, but partway through, I realized I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to be practical about what my major was, and mm-hmm. I was really hesitant about painting. But I was like, well, architecture, environmental design, those are all hard things. Right, so right. I'm just going to go for what I really want here and see what happens. Yeah, Mike is a great school. What, it's split, right? There's the two, isn't there two? Like there's the Royal. Oh, that's for um, grad school. But oh, that's I was there school. for undergrad. I gotcha. Yeah. Did you have a good experience there? Oh my gosh, wonderful. I um, Maryland too. I mean, Baltimore, yeah. great Baltimore town. Baltimore is such a good city, uh, a college city, but also it's so close to D.C., yep. Philly, New York, and the, the location itself was crucial to um, you know, my understanding of the art world and branching out and seeing more. Yeah. Um, I had incredible professors from, I was gonna from ask year one. Who, yeah. who, were there some people who really... Um, I had, and Ken Tisa is based here in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, one of, he was, uh, still is a mentor of mine and, um, Timothy App, also an incredible painter. And early on, he actually, um, had introduced me to Grace Hardigan before she passed away. Her work, uh, is also in my, Micah's collection in the halls there. And so yeah. that had a huge impact on me as I was exploring, um, the beginning part of my, abst- you know, abstract work. Yeah. 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 That's a great school. So do you feel like over the, it was four years, right? Yeah. So four, a four lot years. of development over that time? For sure. And it was, it was kind of, you know, I, I didn't have much money. So I, I was kind of bartending and, and working in a furniture store and um, contracting for the Smithsonian all try, while trying to, um, you know, focus on my art in college. But it was a really great experience. My first year there, the chair of painting, Baron you met, I'm not sure if you could tell I was broke because I wasn't able to stretch my paintings, <laughs> use real stretcher bars, but he invited me um, to his house for a faculty party, mm-hmm. um, and they he hired me to help his wife and them um, like prepare all the food and everything, and it was incredible because it, I got more out of it. You know, He didn't need to pay me, um, right. but I got to meet all the professors that I admired and looked up to and already knew their work, and he, he, I think I got like 60 bucks and sent me home with several art books and a, a Joan Mitchell book. That one nice. was really crucial to my uh, Micah years, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, you said that it took you a little bit to sort of find that the female abstract painters, but I would imagine like, you know, Krasner and mm-hmm. just so many like would yeah. have inspired your work in a way. But I, I do that. I say that, but. I always get frustrated when people look at my work and say, oh, you must like Sheeler or Alex mm-hmm. Katz or, you know, the handful of people that they think my work looks yeah, in line like, with. Yeah, there's so much more. There's like so many other people that I love. But yeah. I, I guess part of the reason, too, is that your work's I mean, the process of your work is so much the narrative of what's happening mm-hmm. in it and kind of time. And, you know, so that that becomes something that you align with other people who are interested in process. Yeah. I mean, the, what is what is process mean to you? You know what I mean? Um, or is that where the creativity lies in, in making yeah. the image? 
Well, I think, to be honest, for a while I was kind of hiding behind the process and not totally um, realizing that process and concept are two different things. And um, But it does start there. It's kind of just the idea of exploring and learning through doing, and, and that's pretty much how I, how I you know, live. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm learning a card game or something and someone's trying to explain it, I'm like, we have to just do it, and, and then I'm going to figure it out. And it's the same thing with paint as I was figuring out what different types of paints do and how they react and what you should and should not do um, was really fascinating to me. But it's interesting to hear you talk about how, you know, people look at your work and like, oh, um, wait, who did you say? Not Alex Katz, Katz, that can be flattering and then also so frustrating because I, you know, and I realized there was a point where I needed to step away from Joan Mitchell and de Kooning and, um, and, and and try to find my own voice within that. But, I remember when I was um, at Barry New Met, the painting professor's house, I told him that he asked me what kind of artist I wanted to look at, and I just said, uh, really gutsy, like vulnerable, messy artist, and then that's when he pulled out Joan Mitchell, and I was right. so um, enamored by the fact that she was a woman, yeah. <laughs> and, and she didn't care, like, you know, didn't care, and like her work was so masculine, and I was craving that so much, and so I think studying those artists and, and understanding their approach um, really helped me get to my, my point of view. Yeah. But I imagine I, in bringing up artists like that, I imagine mm-hmm. I could bring up Agnes Martin and you would be a fan of Agnes Martin oh as well. Oh my gosh. She's which is a different one of kind, my favorite. Yeah. yeah. A different kind of <laughs> process, but yeah. a process. And then a sort of quiet intensity. I mean, those are very strong paintings as well, but in this more meditative kind yeah. of, you know, the quiet of them, which is a real beauty and strength to that work isn't it incredible that her work translates as a quiet sound yeah i imagine she i don't know i don't think her work was very planned i think she was just going for it um but there's something about when you're i don't know if you've been to sf moma recently but they have a room where you can walk in you're just surrounded by um agnes martin's work and to me it's like um Beethoven is softly playing in the yeah, background yeah. when you're there. You yeah, it's been that. a while since I've been SF MoMA, but Dia has Agnes Martin. And oh, that's right. It's always a great experience. And it's funny that you mentioned music thing because a lot of times when I see those, you know, hand-drawn lines in there, they they feel like um, like music scales that have no notes in them. Yeah. So you can kind of imagine. Or it's either about quiet or you can imagine the notes that would be in them. But I do that thing all the time. This is not synesthesia at all or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I have this almost like a problem where when I look at art and paintings or sculptures, whatever it is, I, I think of the music that it sounds like. Why is that a problem? Because sometimes it gets in the way. Or, or I'll say to people, like, your, your paintings look like a pavement song. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? So I, I'm trying to, um, to tampen that down, but I love doing that. Yeah. You're trying to do that because you're worried it's kind of a literal approach or like no, you know, how someone p- sees something in a painting and you're like, it's not there. Yeah. Or people just might not be into it. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, I don't really think that about my work. Okay. Yeah. I had I a visiting it. artist once when I was in undergraduate school and his, his work was really kind of funky, abstract, thick in some parts, but then very controlled and taped off in other yeah. parts. And I, I was convinced that this guy just listened to jazz all the time because it was so jazzy and I asked him and I was like what do you listen to like Miles Davis and Charlie Parker and he's like no I just listen to NPR all the time and I was like oh like I was well they have it subtly playing in the background sometimes that's true yeah (laughs) it was influencing (laughs) the intro outro music yeah I I would look into I I was gonna say I I would look into the um looking at paintings and hearing sound because honestly that sounds like a form of synesthesia does it maybe you don't even realize yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I have to do it like the right above your head right now. There's a, there's a bright red print and I can't stop thinking about yeah. it reminds me. I think but it's then, Wayne White. Yeah, it's Wayne yeah. White. Yeah. And, but it reminds, and Wayne White, right, I think he did uh, a Lamb Chop record cover, if I'm not mistaken. So I think that's the yeah. reverse of where now that I can't, right. I look at those and I think of like Lamb Chop or yeah. like that kind of music. Ruined. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> It's, it, it's, yeah, sometimes it's too specific, I think. But do I you that. feel like your work looks like a certain kind of music? Um, sometimes I don't want it to because 
you know, it depends on what I was listening to. And if I'm, if I'm having a very sophisticated morning and I'm listening to Beethoven, that's wonderful. But if I switch it over to, I don't know, it's Britney who's Spears. the new pop sensation, <laughs> Maggie Rogers or someone, uh-huh. then I'm like, I don't know, I could go without them knowing exactly what was going right, on in right. the studio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Do you listen to, yeah. are you always listening to music while you work? Uh, I would imagine because your work is a lot about movement. And when you, uh, unless you're, a robot when you hear music you kind of it gives you a sense of movement in your body in a way i would say that's a good point because i think it's it gives you an energy um yeah. when you know i'm not feeling motivated but i know i need to be in the studio and if you're not feeling motivated probably the best thing you need to do is be in the studio until you can work through it and um so sa- some form of sound is usually how i get going but then the good moments in the studio are when um you know npr is over and or the music stops and I'm still working for a few hours. Um, sometimes those are really hard. Those moments are really hard to come by, and you have to really work for it. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, get into a flow state and um, learn how to do that and how to um, keep recreating those moments. Right. Um, so I guess you're catching me at a point where I feel like, um, you know, we we're talking about consumption, and I'm a little bit skeptical that I listen to too much. And so I've been trying to work a little bit more in silence lately. Yeah. I guess, well, I have an idea. We should curate a show and take, say, six artists. And three of them listen to nothing but Beethoven (laughs) for the two works that they do for the show. Mm -hmm. And then the other three listen to nothing but Black Flag. Wow. And then we'll see how the (laughs) work... That's interesting. It kind of reminds me, um, I was just in a show at um, Mass Mocha, Mm -hmm. and um, actually James Taylor and Carly Simon's daughter curated the show. Really? Um, Yeah, and she, um, it's, it was, we were calling it, it's Telephone of the Senses, and so the idea was that she curated groups of artists that would um, react to each other's work from different senses, so I was responding to a poem, um, and then and I didn't know who the artist was, um, unless you can recognize them, but I didn't know who the artist was that wrote the poem. And then from there, somebody took my painting and made a perfume, uh, made oh, a wow. scent out of it, and That's then cool. um, and so on. And they covered every sense in different circles. Yeah. You know, I was a little skeptical because I was like, my work isn't, um, it, it's just not based on like a string of words. And I didn't want it to become so literal. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't smell like one thing yeah it's just i'm not like it smells like fresh cut track. yeah exactly or you know i'm not um going to uh like i i go paint on site a lot but i'm not like necessarily painting the mountain instead i'm trying to react to the environment yeah. so i tried to be as loose and open as possible with responding to the poem but i think w- the more i worked through it was just reading the poem and letting the words really sink in and then putting it away and going for it right yeah. now that's a cool idea for a show. So I was going to ask, when you're working so physically, and you, it seems like you've had a lot of opportunities to work in public spaces or, you know, outside the studio. Mm-hmm. Do you really enjoy that, like, flexibility or that kind yeah. of outside architectural or, you know, environmental influence on the mm-hmm. work? And has, your, has this stuff changed because of doing some expansive paintings in architectural spaces and stuff like that. Absolutely. I think maybe it's going back to, you know, how much I moved in my life, but um, I've found a shift in perspective is conducive to my work. And um, though it can also be a distraction, sometimes I hide behind that and say like, oh, I need to like go get inspired and go to this awesome place. (laughs) Instead, I'm trying to avoid a problem I'm dealing with in a painting. But that shift in perspective really... Um, help shift the color palette I have. and But that can go either way. I had my friend, uh, t- amazing painter, Ana Valdez, like in my old studio, she always brought in flowers and it, it became this weird thing where I no- started to notice that the flower, the color of the flowers ended up becoming part of my painting. So yeah. there is a way to bring that shift of perspective into the studio and then also be sure to step out. And I, I, I live and work in the same space and I always have to remind myself to like go for a walk. Right. Step away from the <laughs> it, art. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I kind of get so um, consumed by my own work and on, on the good days when, um, you know, nine hours have passed, I'm like, okay, I need to get outside. Yeah, yeah. You need to walk around <laughs> yeah. a little bit. It's a little embarrassing to admit, but it happens. No, yeah. I, yeah it's a, well, just as like 
someone who's learning how to paint a still life, you have to get them to move back from the painting once in a while just so you can yeah. get a different perspective. Yeah, that's why paintbrushes are so long. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. your face isn't stuck like an iPhone on your face. You know? Yeah. You have yeah. to get away from it once in a while to get perspective. Did you seek out those opportunities to work outside the studio or did they just kind of come to you? I So when I first... Um, decided to do painting full-time after um, lots of late evenings and working another job. I had also, I was reconsidering, like, going to, I don't have a graduate degree. I was considering going to grad school and um, artist residencies, and I was really frustrated by the the cost. Um, You know, I had massive student debt and was trying to work through that at the same time. I was going to say, you didn't feel like throwing more (laughs) timbers on the fire I wasn't ready for that yeah Yeah. so I kind of had it in my mind like I'm going to create my own artist residency and I'm going to go see things that I didn't get a chance to see um, before I had never driven across the country and um, so I decided to take my studio on the road and um, packed up all my supplies and I had the perfect setup where I had the option to sleep in the car on the left side of it and then I had all my supplies on the right and then um, I also had a tent, so depending on the weather as I was traveling. It was a little scary at times. I was alone um, painting out, you know, in diff- various national parks. But um, Wait, it were was you working on, on canvas or on paper? Or what mostly was? paper, and I was taping the paper to my car and using my car as the easel. That works. And, you know, I had to get really creative. <laughs> Just trying not to drip too much on the side yeah. of the car. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it worked. But that, I guess, I don't know what pushed that. I just had a need to... Um, get out of the city. Honestly, I was going through a breakup too after right. a five-year relationship and I needed a break from everything. Yeah. And um, I realized I hadn't really had time alone. You know, I was only a year out of college and um, and then had jumped right into that um, day job and was in the studio at night. So I wasn't really um, seeing much. Yeah. So it was time to get out. No better way than just hop in a car and drive. Yeah, just <laughs> I mean, people driving. say that like if this, you know, it's gotten so bad, I just want to get in a car and drive. Yeah. So you did it. Yeah, and it was, I mean, it such a great privilege and opportunity to do that. I had to be extremely careful about, like, how much I was spending. It's why I wasn't really staying in hotels or anything like that. And camping is really the cheapest thing you can do once it. you have the materials. Yeah. I've done the cross-country camping trip. It's great, though. You see, seeing the country in that way. Did you go across the whole country? I did, yeah. Yeah, you, it's, yeah. isn't it? Like, I thought I knew the U.S. before I oh drove across Oh, my gosh. It. And you just, especially when you're alone, you just see... See, I wasn't weird. alone. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's just different, but I That seems daunting, being alone. I mean, I was either with a band or with other friends, but it was I was never alone. But that must yeah. be kind of... It was scary when we would go camping in, like, the Redwoods of California. Because they would, you know, mm-hmm. you'd obviously think there's bears around yeah, here. Yeah, there, there are. <laughs> yeah, drove into a place in the, the park. Because there would be national parks where you could camp, like campsites that yeah. are free. And we'd ask them, are there bears here? And they'd laugh and be like, yeah, there's yeah. bears all over the place. But uh, it was a little scary. When I was um, camping out near Zion National Park, um, and that was my first time going there, I was terrified that night. I mean, yeah. there were a few nights where there was, it was windy and I heard shuffling outside my tent and I was like, what? And you know, a female, single female traveling alone, you, you're a little skeptical of other situations yeah. also. Um, and aware of the other people on the campsite and things like that. But there was some weird shuffling happening that night. And the next morning I woke up and there was, um, mountain lion tracks all around oh. the campsite and I wasn't positive but I was like this is a really big paw and then um I went into the park and showed a photo to the park ranger he's like that was definitely oh my god yeah did you have like a bullhorn or something to like scare things away or um I was, was traveling with bear spray okay I didn't have a horn but I knew you know they don't really want if you make a lot of noise you know don't have your food in your tent yeah I was trying to be smart about it but I'm saying that now, and honestly, like, I was, um, I think, 24 and very naive, so. Sleeping with a ham sandwich? <laughs> like, I hope I wasn't doing that. I hope I had that sense. I'm sure we were doing that. We were, you yeah. Know, the first time I did it with high school friends, it was like, you know. We yeah. were, and back then, no ma- no uh, GPS and a yeah. wing and a prayer. Like, we were just like, well, so hopefully we'll get there. It's, and you can, I'm dyslexic, so I, have, I don't have being dyslexic it's it depends on what type of dyslexia you have but I really don't have much of a sense of direction, direction. so yeah. luckily at that point I was I did ha- I was dealing with like google maps at that point oh, so I knew I, I fantasize yeah. like it must have been it would have been so much easier 
Well, it, the difference though was I don't think Google Maps really worked when you didn't have service, and now it seems to work. And so I had to screenshot a lot of it. Oh right, of, of like what I was Playing doing. Ahead. Was yeah. Yeah. Now um, it works no matter what. It's weird. Yeah. Like you can not make a call, but you could still. I don't. I don't know how that works. Anyway. Um, but oh, I was gonna <laughs> say though. Did you know that you can't have, you can't have toothpaste in your tent either? Why? Because bears are attracted to mint. Oh, that, that was a sense. new one, and I definitely had toothpaste most times. I don't times. think we had toothpaste. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, how, yeah, how did you get to San Francisco though? Because you, so you graduated, Micah. So uh, how, that's what you drove across the country and just hit the uh, coast. Yeah, <laughs> you ran out. I, I was kind of um, so I was graduated, Micah, and I was working there for a while, and I felt like it was time to move and needed a new city. I was considering New York City and it seemed so intimidating at the time and that kind of, you know, but that's what I knew all the artists, especially coming from Baltimore, would go to New yeah, York. Short commute. Um, yeah, San Francisco was interesting. My um, ex-boyfriend had a job transfer with Zynga um, and so it being an illustrator and so we kind of moved out there on a whim and then um, shortly after that, um, you know, decided to end our relationship and I thought, all right, well, I'm here now, and um, I'd only been in the city for about six months, and I was like, I'm just going to stick it out and see what happens, and I was working in the design center um, selling outdoor furniture. Um, It's kind of like where the interior designers go to shop, and it's wonderful if you love textures and uh, material because uh, they have large libraries of that, and um, it was a really wonderful outdoor designer furniture company, and so I had the opportunity to, um, they would fly me to San Diego and L.A. to learn about the materials and learn about sales, and it was really interesting to um, add that to my practice in terms of um, business and, and also, like, material and studying that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, and then San Francisco, just when you moved there, did you, you said you live where you work? Well, when I first moved there, um, I was living in Oakland briefly, and then I um, moved in with three guys that I met on Craigslist, um, who ended up being some of my closest friends. Uh, really lucked out, but it was that Sam- is lucky because that could yeah. go a different direction. I know they they are incredible, but it was so hard to find an apartment, and I was using Craigslist, and which is you know Craigslist originated in San Francisco, yeah. so it's very common. But there, I think I interviewed and visited about 18 different places and either I wasn't a good fit for them or they were very strange and I didn't want to live with them Um, or I just didn't get the place or it was too expensive the Bay Area is just so expensive now and so that's why I had to move in with three roommates and then um, since I was living in Oakland my studio was there and so I kept my studio studio there for several years Mm and um, about two and a half uh, let's see three and a half years ago I moved into a live workspace. Um, I was getting sick of my commute from the Mission District in San Francisco to Oakland every day. And it kind of became my excuse when I wasn't able to see my friends because I was just always, you know, if I was doing something in the studio, I wasn't about to go back to the city for something small. (laughs) Yeah, it's a commitment. So you moved back, you moved into a live work? Right before that, I was actually considering moving to New York and I was on a wait list for a building in uh, Brooklyn and I was like, this is my time, I'm going to do it. And then last minute, I just couldn't leave California. It was just um, really you know, getting out of the studio as much as I talk about the long hours there, um, getting out and being able to go to the ocean was so important to me and, um, the surrounding areas, how fast you can leave the city or be in the city and not feel like you are, um, coming to New York, it's, you know, we got the ocean, concrete jungle, (laughs) (laughs) a little different. Um, yeah, yeah. Coney Island's right down there. Yeah. yeah, Same thing. I got stuck and pulled back into California and, uh, moved into this live workspace. I I basically decided, um, if I'm going to stay here, I need to find a way to make things a little bit easier. Um, moving into this live workspace was really difficult because it was also a lot more expensive, but I felt, um, like I was seeing, that my practice, my career was evolving and it was going to be a good thing. And, um, long-term it's great to have a live workspace. You, you can actually save money if you're smart about it. Yeah. Now as a nomadic person, is it hard doing the live workspace or it seems like you're getting out anyways though? Yeah. It's almost easier because everything's right there. So packing up and going is so fast. Whereas before when I was going on a trip, especially for, um, painting, I'd have to get everything at my apartment, then go to Oakland, get to my studio. 
and now it's kind of all there and it's, I mean I love that my commute is just like down the stairs yeah it's yeah. convenient just I save so much time really I don't need to sit in traffic and I can just jump into it um, I can come back home from hanging out with friends or whatever and jump back into painting if I'm craving it and yeah. so it really yeah allows for those like late night painting cravings that right. I get or early morning if I want yeah and do you foresee sticking it out there for a long time since you know, because you have a yeah. good spot right yeah it's an incredible three-story live work loft in the dog patch um i am i do feel like m- my place is currently a, a construction site like we're an island i live with my partner um, mm-hmm. he's actually a musician mm-hmm. and uh right now all surrounding our entire building is construction the warrior stadium is being built about six blocks oh, from man. us so you can imagine kind of the wave effect and you know, the new Uber offices, lots of tech is coming through, and I find that I can't complain too much, um, but the noise is very loud there. Um, they're building, like, a five-story building right next to my unit. Um, so that has changed things a little bit, but it's been comforting knowing I won't ever be able to buy something in San Francisco, and I'm not sure how long I'll be in this um, building until the owner decides to do something else with it. But yeah. I'm currently building a live workspace in the desert um, in Joshua Tree, and we haven't broke ground yet, but hopefully by the spring we will. And that's been really exciting to know that um, there's another option that is a little quieter than where I'm at right now. Yeah, you'll have space. Yeah, a lot there, more I don't space. think there'll be any stadiums going up near you. I don't well, think you never so. know. <laughs> that would be terrifying. <laughs> more people are moving after all that. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's really it's inc- such a great space. I like. I always thought I'd be more of like a water person. And Mm -hmm. when I went, my friends, um, Sarah and Rich live out in the desert and I ended up, um, with my partner, we bought a property almost next door to them. And we're really excited just to be out there and part of uh, another creative community that's there right now. And, um, there's so many artists that used to live in Joshua Tree are moving there now. And, um, it's great to be able to tap into that community and then also get away and really get to work. And it's so quiet out there that, it's also conducive to that. Yeah, I can imagine it would be another one of those kind of like scene changes that could affect your work as well, you know, just because different yeah. kind of light, different energy. And that is a really great example of how, um, well, it's a great reminder to be outside, honestly, because I, when I'm visiting in Joshua Tree and staying with our friends, I'm pretty disappointed if I didn't wake up early enough to see the um, sunrise yeah. and if I wasn't outside when the sun was setting because it's, the sky feels much bigger. Everything is so broad and also simplified there. Right. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like no matter where I go and where I could have a, a studio in Hawaii, I have one in Pennsylvania and one in Brooklyn, you know. And yeah, that's I'm so kind great. of nomadic when yeah. I work, but I feel like my work is pretty much the same, like the process of it. But when I travel, seeing the world, that's kind of where it comes into my work, like the yeah. subject matter or like the places and different cultures and different... I think it's so healthy to have that kind of mm-hmm. variable in your work. How often are you getting out of the studio and then finding that comes back into your work? Well, I try to travel a lot, you know. I think I did more often, you know, maybe 10 years ago than I do now. I mean, I have yeah. a kid, so we're, we travel, well, we still travel, but a little less than I used to. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I try to travel at least once or twice a year somewhere that different. Yeah. Try to go to Japan every other year or so. So, yeah, if that's not great. every year, and um, yeah, cool, but cool that you have the perspective of your um, son, daughter, son. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's he's into it. He wants. We want to go to Korea next. That's our next destination. Yeah. We'd like to go to. I'd Haven't be curious to see what he would think of it. Oh, he lo- well, he watches culture. all that. He watches like K-pop. He likes oh, the music, okay. and he, he yeah. watches like shows, like game okay. shows and stuff. So he knows. He's, <laughs> he's he knows more about Korean culture than I do. <laughs> Which is funny. Yeah, I'm sure he's learning a lot through the K-pop. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so this shows up. Do you have any yeah. other, like, any other things going on? It seems like you're usually, or you're doing a lot of projects, or you've done a lot of projects in different spaces. What, uh, what's well, kind of your? I'm um, working with Google on a, a project right now. I can't talk too much about it at the moment, but okay. it's pretty exciting. Um, they're giving me access to a lot of their resources and where um, I, I'm getting to collaborate with really talented engineers and um, 
kind of bring our strengths together to make something. So that's been awesome. And that sounds exciting. Can yeah. you do me a favor? Hmm. Can you ask them how they get them to work without the, the cellular service help? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I should be able Send to an answer email. that for you. I'll <laughs> okay. let you know. I'll Thanks. report back. Just while I was thinking of it. Yeah. Sorry, Honestly, anyone in San Francisco will know because they're, they're also tech savvy there. I know they're like idiot. It's and, just, yeah. it works. Yeah. I'm here. I am using this ancient medium. <laughs> They so, all know what's going on. So you have that project? Yeah. This just opened. So we're at Joshua Liner Gallery, yeah. 28th Street, 540, 28th, right? <laughs> 540, 28th Street? Yeah. Joshua Liner Gallery. Yeah. So this is up, I'm guessing it's a month? It's up till February 23rd, and it's with alongside uh, Catherine McNaughton, and I'm so happy to have been showing with her. I When Josh first contacted me, he was mentioning a group show. We weren't sure how big it would be yet and how much work we could all put in together, and he just said, you know, I have a call with another artist and I'll, I'll let you know. And I got off the phone and I told my partner, Chase, that I really hope I, I get to show with Catherine McNaughton. That's funny. And then he emailed me shortly after and suggested that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so serendipitous. It was nice. really great. So this is up. And then what else yeah. are you working on? This is up and I am doing a, a mural in San Francisco um, next week. And or actually it got pushed to a couple months from now but I'm getting back to the city and then I'm actually flying out to Cleveland shortly after that for um, a college talk at the institute there and I'm mm-hmm. helping them um, I'm kind of during the the art show that they have and from there I'm actually traveling to visit um, Fort Wayne um, Museum of Contemporary Art in Indiana mm-hmm. and I'm going to have a solo show there in February 2020 nice so. Yeah, we're do you like still, doing? No, oh, sorry. Go ahead. We're still figuring out the details, but pretty sure February twenty twenty. <laughs> nice. And do you like doing murals? Oh yeah, I. That is another example of a shift in perspective for me. Um, it's so it's so challenging. I am physically, mentally exhausting, it is, isn't it? but I, I love it, and I it gets me out of the studio, and it gets me thinking differently because I you know with my canvases I'm pouring the paint and kind of manipulating it in the way I'm able to tilt the canvas and lift it up and transport it uh, with a wall. I obviously can't tilt the wall, and so that has created interesting obstacles and uh, made me try new mediums because of that. Yeah, I really like doing murals. Yeah, do you do them too? I've had an, I, mean, I just had two on the rag and bone walls here in Houston Street oh, and Elizabeth Street, that. and yeah. um, it's that's the third set like third mural project I've done with them. And when you you know working out in the public, well, especially in Manhattan, mm-hmm. it's such a different vibe. Like people are coming up to you constantly, which I think at one point of my career, I think or my maybe my mindset, I would just be like, just leave me alone, let me concentrate. But now yeah. I really love talking to people and. It doesn't even bother me while I'm working. So it's really fun to just connect with people in the street as you're working on what you're doing. But it, it was so takes practice though. cold. It was, I think, the day, the two days that I did them, I think it was like 20 degrees and really oh windy. Oh my gosh. So it was wow. a challenge. But like you're saying, it, it's a physical challenge, you know? Yeah. It's I a, haven't had to paint in that weather though, outside like that. Well, aside from making these paintings in yeah. upstate New York, but oh, right. I haven't had to do a mural in cold weather. Were you having any issues with the medium on the wall? Yeah. I Well, not on the wall, but in the paint tray. It was uh, freezing. It was turning into slushy. <laughs> not a good sign. <laughs> no, it wasn't good. I don't recommend it. But yeah. it, was, it, was, it was fun. It was a test of will. Yeah. That's but uh, an and then people, view. <laughs> yeah, people coming up and saying, "Oh wow, working in this weather outside—that must be not, you know, like." <laughs> yeah, those thanks comments. for the reminder. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, I get it. It's cold out, <laughs> but it's so fun to to see all the people who are interacting with your work oh, who would yeah. never—not never, but you know, ninety-five percent are never going to a gallery show that you're in, but they see your work on the street and they're commenting and giving you response. It's, it's one of the upsides, I think, of social media and like you know. Social media and public art, I think yeah. it's so important. I, I'm looking forward to doing more of it, but like that that's such a great point that people that wouldn't have interacted with it otherwise and um, are talking to you personally. Yeah. And I think it's such an interesting, I don't know if it's a problem, but something interesting to think about is like how to get um, people that wouldn't otherwise interact with art into those spaces yes. and how to bring them in. It does it though, because I've had, you know, ones in the past where people found my work on the street and then later on, they'll comment or I'll meet them at an opening, mm-hmm. you know, and they'll be like, oh, I, I, I you know, posted that photo of your mural yeah. and, and they actually come to the shows, which is cool. It's, isn't it incredible how social media is such a tool in that way? And, um, it really is. Yeah. It's, you can connect with the um, 
online community and then um, when you actually see them in, in person yeah you you exist <laughs> right right definitely and you're you so you're very active on so yeah instagram facebook pinterest they're all really great um tools to um to leverage and use to um, share your work and it can be kind of daunting at first kind of like self-promoting is kind of crazy and how much we need to do it as artists Mm -hmm. Um, but it's been really incredible to find ways to use social media in a way to connect with larger or in smaller communities um, that either wouldn't otherwise um, see my work um, and and in return I'm also seeing a lot of artists um, paintings and you know in Europe and uh, even artists that I've connected and I've gone in studio visits just this week with you know Aaron Johnson and Austin Eddy and we hadn't met before um, and then to to connect online and then actually make it happen and see the work in person is incredible. It's cool, right? Yeah. It's funny. There's also this thing where a lot of I think a lot of students and younger people, since you know I teach in Pennsylvania, they're not coming to the galleries all the time. There's like this parallel art world on social media that's not quite it's it's like a separate sort of thing in a way you know what I mean mm-hmm. they'll be really into all these artists that I've never heard before that I'm so used to growing up with the canon and like you know looking at art forum or art in America yeah. or New York Times or something and then there's all these other people that are you know well known and have a big following online but yeah. you may not necessarily know their work from galleries it's kind of, but they have a huge influence on how a lot of young students are making work and how they want to make work. But at the same time, that they're seeing it in a two inch by two inch square. That's which is, a problem. Yeah, that's different. <laughs> I I do. Um, but yeah, I think it's really great that um, now we're living in a time where art is more accessible, and that um, though I think having an art degree um, and a background in that has in art education it was really important to my career um, it's not necessarily required anymore and um, it creates other options and other ways to view art and um, you don't need to purchase a magazine or buy a textbook anymore right um, so that's really great but I am also a little skeptical of how social media has become um, this factory for this like you know instant art and grat- it's you know, of course, very gratifying to get the likes on Instagram. And I don't know that all the art I'm seeing on there is, is of quality either. Right. Um, so it's really important to curate what we're all looking at and understand why we like it and um, to make sure to see it in person, too, and see the difference. Yeah, because there's a different sensibility to liking something. Like, there's a lot of those videos of people doing in-process things, which are kind of, mm-hmm. you know, like like watch this eye appear with a pencil and it's like okay that's cool on instagram but then what happens yeah the oddly satisfying yeah trend it's like cats yeah and and how much i i think it's um that's more for the audience and i've done things where i've posted like a a quick where i was pouring the paint and i was like this is neat and i don't need to think too much about where the paint's going so i'm just gonna video this little thing Mm -hmm. and then get off basically because um the more we are filming what we are doing, um, the less we are in the moment and thinking about how what the outcome is going to be. And God, then like, it just revolves around social media. Right. Like people at the damn concerts when they have their phones up and oh recording, it's like, A. No one wants to see that later. No one's, <laughs> you're not looking at it. It doesn't sound good through an yeah. iPhone microphone or a yeah. Samsung. You're not, you can't hear the music through there. Yeah. It's why are you doing it? But it always reminds me, it makes me feel like we're fireflies or something. Like How so? Because we, oh. in, not, in a concert, you just see these lights flickering. It's almost, it we're trying weird. to connect with people in this mediated way through like, yeah, you know, no. we don't have lights on our butts like fireflies, do, but we, you know, we have <laughs> these phones that we're like. Yeah. And then we're share. connecting less perhaps. You're catching me in a place right now where I'm um, not on my phone as much and I'm really proud of it because it took me a while to remember like I don't need to have my phone on the table with me right now as we're talking like it sounds so silly but it was just a weird dirty habit that I got into and I was like I need to put this away and so when I'm in the studio I try to make sure unless I need it for something my phone is like on the other side of the room I don't need that near me all the time and I don't need the reminder to look at the screen yeah yeah and then trying to get back in the groove because you know how it is when you're working yeah and it just takes one one thing to throw One off. thing to yeah. just like, wait, what, what was I working on? You know, and that's, I think it's important to have that. Just like I think it's important for artists to have that downtime where they're not, yeah. they're just sitting there. Do you find, <laughs> do you have a schedule where you're more on your phone and email or whatever in the morning or how do you, how do you usually I, I'm, do the studio practice? Yeah, I kind of, when I'm working, I try to keep it. A bit. I don't know, something happens though when you have a kid that it's always, mm. 
I'm always around it in a yeah. way, but I don't need to, I, I don't have that necessity to engage in it all the time. I can see how people get addicted to it. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, when I was playing Super Mario Brothers when I was a kid, I was really into it. And sometimes my parents had to be like, all right, dude, it's time to go outside. But <laughs> yeah. then I would go outside and play soccer. And so. then that was fine. Yeah. It's yeah. a balance. Yeah. Life is sure. a balance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about your plans. And then yeah. people, so they can come here to see your show for a month, basically. And yes. Yes. Um, do you have a, you have a website too? That's yeah. Your, heatherday.com. That's We're going to plug it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just Heather Day. And on social media, you guys. Heather Day. Yeah. I th- well, Twitter, I'm barely on Twitter. Heather Day Art, I think. And yeah, mostly Heather Day is how you can find me. Sounds good. Well, it was really nice to meet you. Thanks yeah. for bravely coming out the morning after an opening. <laughs> it was good that it got me out because I probably would have just stayed in the hotel. So. <laughs> Sorry, that probably was... That was probably going to be nice to sleep in, but... It's it's worth it. Thank you for coming out. Nice to meet you. You too. Thanks. Thanks. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com. I put some pictures up there from the studio visits and gallery visits. And you can also donate to the podcast there if you want to support it that way. You can also leave a review and a rating on iTunes. Uh, you can check out the podcast on Stitcher. It's on Spotify and a bunch of other podcast platforms. Many thanks to Lullatone for the music you're hearing now, the intro-outro music, and the introduction by Michael Lovett of Nazca Lines. He also plays with Metronomy, so check them out when they go on tour. And thank you for all your support.